kindness. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Salvation was not owed to us. Salvation is not deserved or earned. Lord, but salvation is freely given and you called Savannah to yourself. You called her first in salvation and now to be at home with you. I pray for those that are left behind, Jesse and her family, Lord. Pray that you would give them comfort that only you can provide. Only the Christian can experience peace that surpasses all understanding, knowing, knowing you. Thank you for your many blessings, Lord. Thank you for bringing us here today. None of this is by accident, as we will see in this text, Lord willing. I pray that your word would go forth with power, Lord. Please move amongst our people. Change hearts, Lord. Help us to see the beauty of Christ. Please remove all distractions, Lord, from our minds and help us as we look at this text. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts 8. Thank you, Tyler, for reading. You did a great job, man. For those of you who don't know me, I'm obviously not Pastor Scott. I will not be making any cowboy references, because to do so would, to be, would be to speak of something that I have no clue. So, uh, but I enjoy that about him. I know you um, enjoy him, and we're so thankful for Pastor Scott, thankful for all of our pastors, but to bring the Word of God to us on a consistent basis every Sunday and Wednesday that he's able to, uh, we forget how difficult that is. And to do all of the other things that he does, I'm thankful for uh, men like him. But I'm ultimately thankful for the one who equips him to do it, which is Christ. And thankful for the word that we have, which is our only sure hope, our only sure foundation. But my name is Josh Brown. I'm our young um, families director here. Uh, My wife and I uh, moved back here in March. Um, We recently graduated from seminary in Colorado Springs. And I'm just thankful for the privilege to open the Word with you today. So thankful. I hope you're excited. Because anytime we get to open the Word, it's exciting for me and it should be for us. And I want to ask you a question. And it, as Hayward said, the song, they didn't pick that song because they knew what was going to happen. We don't, I, I didn't pick this text this morning. But I want to ask you, in light of what we just talked about, with Savannah, have you ever had something unexpected happen to you? Have you ever had something unexpected happen to you that you feel has changed your life, changed your thinking, changed your perspective? Obviously, to be unexpected is to not be anticipated, right? This passage today, we will see Two unexpected encounters, but we will see the results of those encounters were life-changing for this man. And I want you to, as we read this, realize that this actually happened. I think so often as we read Scripture, we think it is so far removed from us that, that it wasn't actually a historical event, but this was. What we read has happened And we get to celebrate this unexpected encounter that resulted in this man's life changing. So let's start. In verse 25, it says this. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. 
Now, before we go on, it would be helpful to provide some background about what that so is there for, what, what is happening beforehand so that we can figure out what's going on. So just flip over a page, or maybe it's on your same page, to verses 1 through 5 of this chapter. You will see, this is right after Stephen has been stoned, and we know this first part, but we don't always see the ramifications of it. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 5 says this, Saul who we later know to be Paul, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. This is where we are first introduced to Philip's evangelistic ministry. In chapter 6 of Acts, this is, it's revealed that this Philip is not Philip the Apostle. This is Philip, one of the seven chosen to serve the needs of the church. And we see Philip is scattered abroad as a result of persecution. The persecution moved people to spread out, and you can see how God is orchestrating that to get his word out, right? He's preaching to the Samaritans, and as the rest of the chapter, or or at least a good portion of the chapter lays out, many Samaritans were coming to Christ, so much so that the church in Jerusalem realized, hey, we need to send Peter and John to go check this out and make sure it's true, They come, they see that, yes, indeed, these Samaritans had believed, and the Holy Spirit comes upon the Samaritans, showing that the Samaritans also are included in God's kingdom, not just the Jews. This is very important. You see a story about Simon the Magician, a man who had great power and status before he believed, but then erred in thinking, hey, I can acquire this power to impart the Holy Spirit. Peter rebukes him in verse 23, and he asks them to pray for him in verse 24, and that sets the background for verse 25. So let's read it again. So when they had solemnly testified, that is, Peter and John and Philip, and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. That verse 25 is probably best Uh, met with the previous section, but it's a good transition point to us as it introduces the story that we're going to focus on today, which brings up our first point. God is at work in the unexpected. God is at work in the unexpected. We see in verse 26, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Now, this is a strange command. We'll lay that out in a moment. But Gaza was one of the five prominent Philistine cities. It had often been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. We're not exactly sure if this command is meant to go to the Gaza that had been rebuilt on the coast or if it was to go through the ruins of a destroyed Gaza. But the point remains that Philip is commanded to go to a road where not many people travel. Now, perhaps you might think, well, yeah, of course, we know the story, but you got to understand from Philip's perspective, this command doesn't really make much sense in man's eyes. You probably can imagine Philip thinking, wait a minute, we're preaching the gospel to the Samaritans. Many people are believing this is fruitful And you want me to leave? Not only that, but you want me to go to a road that has hardly anyone on it? You see how this would have been, this would have probably been the last command that Philip would have expected. People are believing, and yet I go to a deserted road. But I, and the story doesn't tell us what he was thinking, but you have to imagine some of those things are going through his head. This is an unexpected command. And we see his response in verse 27, and I love it. So he got up and went. This is the anti-Jonah. 
right? Jonah said, hey, I received a command. Yeah, it doesn't really make much sense to me, God. You realize that they're enemies? I know better than you, so I'm going to go in the opposite direction. No, that is not Philip's response. He says, okay, this command, I don't understand it. I didn't anticipate it, but I will obey, and I will trust. This shows his unwavering trust that God will accomplish his work even when he doesn't get it, right? His unwavering trust is clearly seen. But then we shift to another character, and we look in verse 27. The second character is introduced. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, if we want to understand this character, we need to look at some of the the ways that he's described. One, he's from Ethiopia, which is not close by, to say the least. It is to the southern parts of Egypt, beyond Egypt, And it was considered by many Greeks and many other people to be the outermost parts of the known world. This man was on a mission, clearly, as we see. He is a eunuch, a court official of Candace. Notice those are two terms there. Oftentimes, in the scriptures, um, sometimes those terms can be interchangeable. To be a court official and eunuch, those terms can be interchangeable. So the question is, is this man really a eunuch? Meaning one who is no longer able to produce, whether by castration or other um, difficulties. And there is a reason why that matters. You might think, well, what, what in the world does that matter? It does matter. And I think, and of course, if you've been paying attention in Pastor Scott's uh, going through Genesis on Wednesday nights, and now he's into Exodus, you remember Potiphar. He's, he, he came up, he, he looked and researched, and Potiphar could have been A eunuch, perhaps. He was a court official. Those terms are interchangeable. And oftentimes, this was a common practice for many kingdoms to ensure that their royal bloodlines would not be tainted. You can imagine this, right? Somebody who's high-ranking, who would have access to the females of the kingdom, they would want to ensure that they don't spoil the royal bloodline. Okay? This is what I believe is going on here. Clearly his status is seen. I believe he was actually a eunuch, not just in title. Sometimes they were a court official, but I think we have good reason to believe the fact that Luke uses both terms, eunuch and a court official, that he was actually a physical eunuch. We'll see why that matters in a little bit. We see his status. He was in charge of all of the treasure of this far-off queen. This is not just just a a random person that works in the accounting department. This is somebody that would be equivalent to the Secretary of the Treasury in the United States. Somebody who had a very high ranking. We see he is in service to Candace, who's a queen of the Ethiopians. And upon further research, Candace is actually not a proper name. Candace is not the queen's name. Candace is actually a term like Pharaoh or Caesar. In fact, many Ethiopian queens went by the name Candace. So this doesn't really tell us much about which queen it was because all of the queens were called Candace. Does that make sense? Similar to those two titles. So that's what they called their queen. But we see his intent finally revealed at the end of verse 27. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He had a goal He would not have made this journey unless he was seeking something. Notice, he's seeking something he didn't have. Notice, he's seeking something to make himself satisfied, to find peace, to find comfort. He obviously, which implies that his title, his money, his power, his influence didn't fill what he needed. Right? We see this clear. He was going because he lacked something. Now, many would ask, why is he coming to Jerusalem to worship a Gentile? What? How would he even have heard about um, Judaism? We know that he must have heard about Judaism in some way by someone because that's why he came to Jerusalem to worship. Well, is this man saved then? And of course, we see no. 
Now, in the ancient world, in the Jews' eyes, there were three types of Gentiles. One, a Gentile that didn't care about God, followed their own idols, followed their own ways, didn't care, they were dirty, they were filthy, they were the ones to keep away from. Then there was a God-fearing Gentile, one who understood that the God of the Jews at the time was, a real, was the real God, was the true God. In fact, a God-fearer could be defined as a Gentile who had become sick of their own religion, of its immoralities and idolatries, and had come to the conclusion that the God of Israel is the true God. And this is where the term God-fearer comes. They began to pray to God and perhaps became involved in worship at the synagogue. The God-fearer believed in the ethics of the Old Testament, but had never been circumcised and therefore wasn't a full convert. Okay? And then there was the third type, which were full converts to Judaism. They would have carried the act of circumcision. They would have been converted to all of the things of Judaism. The interesting thing is, if this man was truly a eunuch, he was not eligible to be a full convert. Deuteronomy 23 makes it very clear that no eunuch is allowed in the assembly. And in the ancient synagogue, you can imagine this, there was an intersection where the Jews were, they worshipped God, and there was an intersection where the converts could go, and then there were the Gentiles that had to be on the outside, right? And this is most likely where he would have come to worship. And it says he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Most likely, this is what he heard when he went to the worship service. And this is very interesting, but before we dive into it even more, you can understand, tying it back to this point, that God is at work in the unexpected. These two guys wouldn't normally meet, especially where God has them meeting. Philip is sent to a deserted road. And, of course, all of a sudden, this Ethiopian eunuch appears on the scene. We get to see that even though neither of these men could expect this meeting, God had orchestrated it to happen. Right? And you think, and naturally you might think, well, why, why does he go through all this length to save just one man? Weren't there many Samaritans believing? Believer, this is the affection he has for you. He loves you individually, just like he loves this Ethiopian eunuch. And he went out of the way to see that he would be saved. And Philip wouldn't have expected this, but we see this meeting. Nothing, nothing happens in this story and in our lives that is random. Nothing happens that is truly unexpected by God. That is comforting to me. You may think, I didn't anticipate this. I didn't want this in my life. You might ask, why, God? Why did this have to happen? Why did so-and-so pass away? Why did I lose my job? Why, did, why am I hated by people around me? Why did I have to get cancer now? Why did I get this? Why do I do this? It doesn't make sense, and yet God says, I have a plan. And, as Hayward mentioned, it is always for the good of those who love him. And it is also comforting to know that this God, who has the master plan, is a good God. I would not want to serve someone that is evil and wicked that had the master plan. Even when things don't make sense humanly, God is at work. You can rest assured every single time. Could it be, perhaps that a setback for us is actually a step forward in the kingdom. We see this. Philip had to think of this, even in his obedience, as a setback to kingdom work. Not that he was boasting in himself, but thinking, I'm being removed from people that are being saved, and I'm going to a place where no people are. And it was all for this reason. We see this. Doesn't this parallel leaving the 99 to go get the one? cares. Christ cares. As we move on, 
we see this, the second point is this first unexpected encounter, and that is with Philip. And we see this as we read verses 29 through 31. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, who knows how long Philip had to sit in the desert? No idea, right? There's some imagination that we are allowed to have here. And perhaps he's tired just chilling on a rock. And God says, hey, you see that chariot? Now, chariots, last time, I, last time I've done any research, they don't move at a snail's pace, right? It probably was at least moving at a decent pace. I don't know if it was slow or fast or whatever. But Philip's probably exhausted in the middle of the desert. And he says, hey, yeah, go up. Run up to that chariot. Philip's like, really? I gotta go run to the chariot? It's a chariot. He's probably thinking, what? So I don't know. I like to imagine him sprinting, sprinting alongside this chariot, trying to get their attention. Obviously, there was probably a big, uh, a big procession of people because this man was very important. And it says, he ran up and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. He was reading aloud. He must have been reading very loudly because the whole thing must have been a very loud event. But I just can picture Philip saying, hey, you know, running next to the chariot, what are you reading? And the, the guy's like, what? What is this guy doing here? But I'll tell him. He says, I don't know. <laughs> he says, I have no idea what I'm reading. And we see, he says, Philip asks him, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Notice this man's humility. This eunuch knew he did not have something that he needed. Also, it can be seen that the, whatever worship he was doing at Jerusalem clearly didn't make things clear for him. Right? He is still perplexed by Scripture. He still doesn't understand. He still doesn't have the answers to what he's looking for. And he, notice, he knows that. He says, of course I don't understand. A court official of a highest order is not normally prone to have humility. And he says, I don't understand. And he invites him. A random man in the middle of the desert. Perhaps this, this Ethiopian eunuch knew, maybe this man can help me understand what I'm trying to figure out. And so we see in all of this, this scripture that is read, and this indicates certainly his wealth. Not everybody had a copy of the scriptures, but this man did. And we read, let's read the passage that he was in, verse 32 and 33. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, he was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a, man, as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, tell me of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? This has the idea of somebody that's been wrestling with this text for a while. Please, random stranger that I just met in the desert, tell me who is this talking about? Please, I know there's something here, but I can't understand it. And this is where we get to our third point, which is the second unexpected encounter and the one that would be life-changing for this man. In verse 35, it says, then Philip, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. There is so much content that is wrapped in that verse that we're not privy to. And I'll show you why in a moment. We know that. But beginning from this scripture implies that he went other places, right? If you begin somewhere, you didn't end there. So he uses this. He said, great. Philip's probably like, and you've got to think of Philip's perspective. He's probably thinking, ah, I know why God has me in the middle of the desert. Now I see. This man needs to understand these things, and he thinks, great, perfect verse to start with. 
Let's talk about this. Who is this Christ? So I want you all to turn with me to Isaiah 53, which is where this is quoted from. And perhaps this is what Philip may have done. We don't know. It just says he preached Jesus to him. Notice Philip has no interest in showing him his teaching eloquence. He has no interest in just talking about knowledge and and getting into some of the deep things here. He has one concern in mind. He wants this man to see Christ. He preached Christ to him, which this is from the Old Testament, which tells us the Old Testament teaches about Christ. Right? So we find ourselves in chapter 53, verse 7, is where 7 and 8 is where this man was reading. And interestingly enough, verse 8 is cut off, but I think Philip might have done something like this. Hey, let's read those two verses and let's finish the chapter. So let's read it. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living... For the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor, there were, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors." I have no doubt that Philip said, this is definitely not talking about the prophet Isaiah. And he probably started by saying, hey, this man is Christ. And do you know why Christ needed to come and die? Do you know why? It's because all of mankind are guilty under sin. All of mankind will inherit eternity in hell forever apart from God's intervening work. And this Messiah is the only way for one to be made right. And by the way, Mr. Ethiopian, it is nothing, it has nothing to do with your works. It has nothing to do with your efforts. It's only by Christ. Christ is the one who bears the iniquities. And so you can imagine a conversation going back and forth. The eunuch probably asking, well, well tell me, how can, how can we be made right with God? If that's true, how can we do this? If he's the lamb that is slain, how can we be made right? And Philip probably laid out, to have faith in Christ. And when that happens, your sin, your guilt, your pain, your suffering is transferred to Christ. And in turn, you get Christ's righteousness. You see, this is not shown in the story, but it is undoubtedly what Philip had mentioned because it said, beginning from here, he preached Christ. Christ is sufficient for salvation. He preached Christ. And so, as we consider these things, surely he talked about some of the things we know to be true in Scripture. Turn to Colossians 1. He says this Christ, I want to tell you, certainly he, this is not a five-minute conversation. It took some time. Who knows how long they were traveling on the road where they were just discussing these things, most likely back and forth, question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. This is the Christ of the Bible. This is the Christ who is the true God. 
Verse 13 through 18 says this, For he rescued us, this is God the Father, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And the rest of this passage is about the Son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He must have said to the eunuch, you want to know God? You've been pursuing God? You've been pursuing the true God? Look at Christ. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the way that you can have redemption. And it goes on. For by him all things were created, both in heavens, in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus Christ is the creator. And by the way, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. We don't know the extent of this conversation between the two, but we know Christ was shown to this man clearly. He was confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ. And somewhere, and you've probably seen this before in, your, in maybe your salvation story, or maybe you've seen this look on somebody's face when they get it. No longer do they feel like they're talking to a person. They feel that Christ is speaking to them directly. And this eunuch was struck. No longer was this about some random stranger he met on the road. He had seen Christ. And we see his response, which is our fourth point. The response when confronted with Jesus, and it is clear. Now, Jesus was just shown to this man before we read this text. The king of kings is presented before the eunuch, and he has a choice. When you're confronted with Christ, you have a choice. You can either follow, or you can continue on your own way. And this eunuch had seen that my way doesn't cut it. I know Christ is who I'm missing. And he responded in this beautiful passage of verse, 30, verse 36. Let's look. As they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Oh, this is such a beautiful part because his background must have informed this. But he was so excited at seeing Christ. Faith had already happened here. There's not a decision that's later. Well, maybe I need to consider it. Thanks for the presentation, Philip. He didn't make some public profession. He believed. He, as Philip was speaking to him, he could see that the truth of the scriptures was for him. And he had faith, and he, said, he was so excited, he said, Look, water! In the middle of the desert, water! What prevents me from being baptized? And of course, we see that water is not what he's excited about. He's excited about following through with baptism, stating to all the world around him that he is a follower of Christ. He had found what he was searching for, and he couldn't contain himself anymore. But his background informs this all the more, and I love this. And I love what he asks at the end of verse 36. What prevents me from being baptized? You see, when he went to, the, to Jerusalem to worship, he was on the outer part of the synagogue. His physical status as a eunuch prevented him from experiencing full fellowship with the God of the Jews. And so naturally, he's probably wondering, is there something, I know that I am a eunuch, is there something that would prevent me from following Christ? Is there anything that would hold me back? Because if there is, tell me now, I can't contain myself. And, of course, in verse 37, we see Philip essentially saying, and, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but you can imagine this in the story, no. Do you realize the comfort that must have rushed over him, thinking, I've been prevented from worshiping the true God for so long. 
And you're telling me that I can be made right with him and I don't have to bring anything to the table? You're telling me that my condition's not going to prevent me from knowing Christ? What a glorious truth. Nothing holds you back from Christ. But we see in verse 37, and it's worth mentioning here, most of your Bibles hopefully would say that this, is, this statement here, it's in um, brackets, it says, And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That is not in the earliest, uh, most reliable manuscripts. So I would say, please do not regard this as Scripture. But I don't think we necessarily need this verse to be Scripture to understand that a conversation like that must have took place. Right? Naturally, that would be a conversation that would happen. Philip would probably say, there's nothing. If you have faith, let's go. Right? So I want us to be careful with verse 37. Let's not regard it as scripture, but of course we can understand that a conversation must have taken place. And notice, I also want to point out that, to, to prove the point that not everything about, that Philip mentioned about Jesus is mentioned here, the eunuch knew he needed to be baptized somehow. Right? Obviously, this man, Philip, had told him he needed to be baptized. He wouldn't have just come up with it. So we know there's things here that are missing, but he showed him Christ. And this is where we find the passage progressing. We see this in verse 38. He ordered the chariot to stop. And I would have loved to be in that, in that caravan. I don't know. I don't think it would prob- probably be an easy thing to just say stop. Everybody's momentum's going forward. There's a lot of people in this journey. And this, their high official's saying, stop. There's something that is more important than anything else that I have to take care of right now. And they both went down into the water, it says, and Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And in verse 39, we see, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. Did you catch it? Philip's gone. I think this is quite humorous, actually. He's gone down to the water with Philip. He's probably walking back to the chariot thinking, man, that was awesome. I'm wet, but my guy's got a lot of clothes. You know, tell me more about the scriptures. Philip's gone. And I love his response. We would naturally think, what? Where did he go? What just happened? The guy that just told me all this is just gone. Imagine if one of our baptisms, one of them just walked out with the pastor and they're talking to him in the choir room and then all of a sudden the pastor's gone. We'd be like, what? We'd probably be quite confused. But I love his response. It says, he went on his way rejoicing. He was unfazed. Do you know why? It's because he had lost Philip, but he had found Christ. He had lost Philip, but that didn't matter. Because he had found the one that he had longed for for so long. He said, who cares if Philip's not here? I don't care. I found Christ. I love this. And then it, then it fast forwards, it tells us what Philip's doing. Imagine being Philip. Gets told to go to a desert roads, probably sitting there for a while. Then he's got to do some cardio, catch up to the chariot. Then he, teaches, he preaches the gospel. He gets to baptize, and then all of a sudden he's teleported, and he founds himself at Azotus. Certainly he would be like, man, this is strange. This is, this is strange, But you know what he does? I love it too. He's unfazed. He says, it it goes on to say, he found himself at Azotus, which is another ancient city of the Philistines. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. He says, I don't really fully understand what just happened. I know that Christ just saved a man. I'm an Azotus. Somebody probably told him. He probably had to ask, where am I? Oh, Azotus? Okay, great. Where do I go to get back to Caesarea? Okay, let me tell you about the gospel. He's unfazed. He's unfazed because he knows Christ is at work. And he wants to tell others. He undoubtedly was fueled to keep telling people. He had seen the purpose in what was unexpected in the desert 
to show someone Christ, and now he was eager all the more to do it. I love how unfazed these guys are. One quick note, because I think it's important. You'll notice many churches practice this, even Riverbend does. We give, um, after one makes a profession of, um, of salvation, we encourage them to be baptized. It is a command of God. If you are a Christian in here and you have not been baptized, what are you waiting for? Cannot help but lo- share your love for Christ. Sh- identify with him. But I think it's important, many people ask, well, why don't we baptize somebody right away? Why don't we baptize somebody right away as soon as they believe? Well, this time was a little bit different, and with baptism came great difficulty. Because once you were identified with Christ, you were on the chopping block. You see what I mean? When one of us in America professes Christ, it's very easy to say, I follow Christ. Because we're not often persecuted. In this day, his works and his faith were proven by saying, I'm willing to die for Christ. I'm going to put the target on my back because it doesn't matter. I'm following Christ. I think there's wisdom, though, in letting somebody help them know what they believe and seeing fruit. But this fruit was evident. He was saying, I'm willing to die. You see the difference? I think there's wisdom. I just want to mention that because um, some people ask that. But both of their responses are incredible. I love how unfazed they are. But... As we see this story wrap up, how does this apply to us? How in the world, what are we supposed to take away from this? And that's why I wanted to ask you two questions in response to this. One, how do you respond when the unexpected happens? It's not easy. Unexpected means you can't plan for it. You didn't anticipate it. It's not convenient. You don't understand it. But what do you do when the unexpected happens? Do you run to Christ for comfort? And knowing that you don't need him to give you an understanding. That's what's tough. When we don't fully get it. We don't see the full picture. But one day we will. One day we will see that perhaps your suffering now led to people hearing about Christ. Perhaps your example that you set in times of difficulty caused someone to be so moved that they wondered, what what is your hope? You have an opportunity when unexpected things happen to show your love for Christ and unwavering trust like Philip did. It made no sense to Philip to be moved to the desert when things were working. And yet we see that was the very means that God used to bring a sinner to repentance. Could not the same thing be said to us in our lives? We don't know the meaning for everything. We don't fully understand. But we do know that God is good. We do know that he cares for us. We do know that all of it works together for his master plan and for his glory. Is that not comforting? Notice this also. You are here in this room today because God brought you here. Colossians tells us, in him all things hold together. Meaning, if he were to let loose his grip on anything in this world, it would vanish and be gone in an instant. He brought you here. Well, you say, no, I brought myself here. You say, no, my friend brought me here. You say, no, actually my vehicle brought me here. God brought you here. You see, the the unexpected encounter between Philip and the eunuch and the eunuch in Christ, perhaps you weren't expecting it today and you've been confronted with Christ. Maybe you couldn't have anticipated why you're here Maybe everything in you told you not to come today. It seemed like it was a bad day. You woke up, everything was going wrong. But you're here. And you're confronted with Christ. 
So the second question that I have for you is, how will you respond after being confronted with Christ? Perhaps God has brought you here to be confronted and see his glory for the first time. We don't just gather here as Christians to just check up on each other, see how we're doing. We come here to worship Christ. Without Christ, we don't meet together. Without Christ, we don't even know each other, probably. It's all about how we respond. Do you respond like this man and say, I've seen enough. I've seen Christ. I see He is the one that I have been missing. He is the one who can give peace. He is the one that can give comfort. He is the one that can remove my guilt. Have you ever been weighed down by guilt before? It is one of the most burdensome and cumbersome things you can possibly live with to be weighed down with something that you can't take off the weight. And yet Christ says, come to me, all you who are burdened, and I will give you rest. He promises this. And notice he doesn't promise because of how good you are or what you can and what you can't give him. This this man, this eunuch, had a ton of money at his disposal, and that mattered nothing to God. You can't purchase this. You must repent. You must have faith. And when you do, when you see Christ in his beauty, in his glory, you see your sin as what it is, you cannot help but respond and say, look, water, let me be baptized because I've already believed. Will you delay another day? And I want to ask you the same question that This eunuch asked Philip. Remember, the eunuch asked, what prevents me from being baptized? Because he knew there were things that prevented him from getting close to other religions. He said, is there anything that prevents me? And I want to ask you and tell you the answer. Is there anything that prevents you from coming to Christ today? Maybe you're thinking, Well, you don't understand. I need to clean up my life first. I've got to get my things in order first. I don't really feel worthy to come to Christ. Wrong. Come. Perhaps you think, well, I don't understand all of the things in the Bible. Maybe all of this doesn't make total sense, but I see Christ, and I just don't know if I can come. Wrong. Come. Perhaps you think, but you don't understand. I really want to pursue the things that I keep pursuing. I really want to do this. I really want to follow this sin. I want to be wealthy. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to follow sin because it's, I enjoy it. Oh, don't believe the lies of sin. And the Bible says those pleasures are fleeting. They will be gone. They will not satisfy And I want to tell you, because temptation often occurs like this. It promises something, promises satisfaction. Perhaps it is by the devil himself saying, hey, follow this and you will be satisfied. Sound familiar in the garden? Follow this and you will be satisfied. And yet, when you sin, guess who is your first accuser? Satan. And he says, worthless, guilty. You will never have Christ. If you are a sinner, if you are guilty, you're compatible with Christianity. You can come to Christ. You don't have to do anything else but have faith in Jesus Christ. That won't make your life perfect. That's not what we preach here. That won't make your life prosper in wealth. But it will give you a peace that surpasses all understanding, knowing that even when the world changes around you, Christ will never change. And Christian, if you've already bowed the knee to Christ as Lord and Savior, let this passage stir up a renewed energy and a renewed love for Christ. If you haven't been baptized, maybe you've been considering it. Maybe you're not, 
Maybe you're just, whatever it is, maybe you feel guilty by the weight of sin. Believer, if you're saved, you are regarded as righteous. Be baptized. Follow Christ. And believer who has been baptized, praise God that maybe you weren't met in a desert place by some random stranger, but you were met in the desert of your sin. You were met in a place where you never expected, where there would be no hope, humanly speaking. And Christ says, follow me, and you did, and it was all because of his work. And now you are here today serving the king. I'm so thankful that Christ knows the master plan. I'm so thankful that when I don't understand things, God does. That doesn't take away the pain, but it helps me understand that God is still working in things that are unexpected, as he did here. Christ is the king. What will you do? Will you respond in this way to Christ? Love Christ. I love this text, and seeing Christ is a beautiful sight indeed. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for showing us Christ. Thank you for not hiding the scriptures. Thank you for not hiding yourself. Just knowing these truths, Lord. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to be worthy to be counted in your kingdom, Lord, and yet you had favor on us. You came to us in a desert land when we had no hope. And you gave us hope through your Son. May we walk through this week in our challenges, understanding that you do have a master plan, that you are at work. You don't just look on the earth and say, these things are random. They don't have a purpose. Everything has a purpose. And I thank you. Lord, I pray for those who don't know Christ, that they would not turn away, that you would help them to see the beauty of who you are and see that the pleasures we have in Christ are not fleeting. They will not go away. That is why we will spend eternity praising you. Eternity is not enough time to sing the vastness of the praise. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this service, Lord. Be with, be with those who are suffering. Show them Christ and help, help them to sense you. And feel your presence close by, Lord. Help us as a flock to minister to those in need, Lord. We pray all this in your name. Amen.